going to read from uh, a new collection of diaries called Keeping On, Keeping On. Uh, when I told my partner the title, he said, oh, well, so long as it's not banging on, banging on, <laughs> which uh, diaries tend to be. They tend to be a receptacle for all one's complaints and grumbles and so on. But I've tried to keep that to a minimum. Um, we're writing a normal profession. I would long since have hung up my pen. Uh, and it is a pen still, not a keyboard. But that would leave me with nothing to do. There's a story about um, Angus Wilson uh, sitting in his garden in Norfolk. And a woman passed uh, with a small child. And the child said, oh, look, mummy. There's an old man writing. And she said, yes, dear. He does them so much good. <laughs> and um, diaries, to some extent, are like that. They, it's, it's a thing that you can do when uh, you really can't do anything else. Uh, if you're, uh, I always think writer's block is a normal state, and the, the, the bits in between are the blessing. But uh, when you've got writer's block, you can always write in your diary. Um, I'm not a conscientious diarist. I don't sit down every evening and review the day, as all too often nothing of note has occurred. Except when I'm rehearsing, or more occasionally filming, I don't stray far from my desk. And even if from time to time I record a breakthrough in something I'm working on, the diary is generally a tale of frustration and dissatisfaction, which, though it may help me, is no fun to read. Still, a diary does have a point. Nothing is ever quite so bad that one can't write it down, or so shameful either, though this took me a long time to learn, with my earliest diaries reticent and even prudish. I remember when I first came across Joe Orton's diaries in the 80s, marvelling and being depressed at how, while he was still in his teens, he was unabashed at himself and unshocked by his fellows, a faculty he seems to have been born with, but which has taken me half a lifetime to learn. I won't bother with the date of each entry, only the year. And rather than trawl through the 10 years and picking out items, I, I've grouped them together under a series of headings, the first of which is trains. Um, in um, 1966, uh, my mum and dad uh, retired from Leeds uh, uh, to a little cottage in the Dales, which luckily we still have. And so we're often on the train to Leeds. 2011. A plumpish young man gets off the train at Leeds just behind me. Aren't you famous? <laughs> well, I can't be, can I, if you don't know my name? <laughs> it's, uh, it's Alan something. Yes. From Scarborough. Uh, no. <laughs> so, which Alan are you? Well, I I'm another Alan. Are you just a look-alike? <laughs> well, you could say so. He pats my arm consolingly. Be happy with that. <laughs> and it was, the, it was the patting of the arm that made me want to write it down. Um, uh, Rupert Thomas, that's my partner, um, uh, had to go to Cardiff to see his... He's young enough to still have a grandmother, so he went to see his grandmother on a potentially, this is in 2012, on a potentially difficult day, as it's also the day of the Grand Slam rugger match between Wales and France. The train is very crowded, 
and he sits in weekend first opposite a middle-aged French couple whom he assumes to be fans, but with nothing in their behaviour that gives any clue. However, just before the train arrives at Cardiff, the very proper bourgeois lady takes out her compact and with her lipstick carefully draws the French flag on both cheeks <laughs> and colours them in. This is done so unselfconsciously and without a smile that Rupert feels that for this alone they deserve to win. <laughs> 2005. Going up and down on the train to Leeds over the years, one comes to know the conductors who have always been friendly. One who regularly chats to me has literary aspirations and also a gift for languages. Finnish is his latest achievement, and I'm translated into Finnish, and the last time we met on the train, he promised to try and bring me back something of mine from Helsinki. Today he reports that all the bookshops had sold out, which is, I suppose, good news, though I wouldn't have thought I rang many bells in the Arctic Circle. <laughs> As the train draws near to Leeds, he makes the usual announcement, then follows it without any prior warning with the same announcement in what I presume is Finnish. <laughs> One or two passengers look up and someone raises his eyebrows in a what are the trains coming to a mode? <laughs> Whereas to find the railways are still a haven for odd individuals and eccentrics seems to me a cause for celebration. They often have a... a a nice turn of phrase as well. One, uh, one of the um, uh, attendants who comes through with the trolley warned against the sudden opening of the sparkling water, lest it be a bit visuvial. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'd have been very happy to have thought of, really. Uh, um, 2012. T.S. Eliot I only saw once, sometime in 1964. It was on the old central station in Leeds, long since demolished, which, the which was the terminus for the London trains. I was with Timothy Binion, with whom I'd been at college, and who in 1964 was a lecturer in Russian at Leeds University, and was also teaching me to drive. In the early 1960s, there'd been a long overdue attempt to reactivate the slot machines, which all through the war years and after had stood empty and disconsolate on railway platforms, a sad reminder of what life had been like before the war. Now, briefly, there was chocolate in the machines again, and cigarettes too. It had taken 20 years, but austerity was seemingly at an end. One beneficiary of this development was a rudimentary printing machine to be found on most mainline stations. Painted pillar box red, it was a square console on legs with a dial on the top and a pointer. Using this pointer for sixpence or a shilling, one could spell out one's name and address, which would then be printed onto a strip of aluminium, which could then be attached to one's suitcase, kit bag or whatever. Astonished to find such a machine actually working after decades of disuse, Binion and I were printing out our names, watched by a friendly middle-aged woman who was equally fascinated. It was at this point the train came in, and after most of the passengers had cleared, there came a small procession headed by the friendly lady, whom I now recognised as Mrs. Fletcher, a customer at my father's butcher's shop, followed by her daughter Valerie, pushing a wheelchair with, under a pile of rugs, her husband T.S. Eliot, all accompanied by a flotilla of porters. It was only when this cavalcade had passed that the person we were waiting for made her appearance 
namely the current editor of the London Review of Books, Mary Kay Wilmers, who at that time worked for Faber and Faber and whose titular boss T.S. Eliot had been. Eliot died early the following year. Timothy Binion, having produced a definitive biography of Pushkin, died in 2004, and now Valerie Eliot has died. I only met her a couple of times, though was persuaded to attend her funeral, if only because, through her family coming to our shop, I'd known her longest, if in some respects least. She used to claim that she remembered me as a boy doing my homework in a corner of the shop, an unlikely recollection and a slightly distasteful one, <laughs> reminiscent of Millet's fairly odious picture of Christ in the carpenter's shop. <laughs> Had I ever chosen to do my homework in the shop, it would have got short shrift from my father, who would have seen it as showing off. What Valerie Elliott did do, though, was to send me the notes T.S. Eliot had made on the inside of his programme after their visit to Beyond the Fringe. An amazing, vigorous quartet of young men. Their show well-produced and fast-moving, a mixture of brilliance, juvenility, and bad taste. <laughs> brilliance illustrated by a speech by Macmillan, Peter Cook, a sermon, Alan Bennett, and an interview with an African politician, Jonathan Miller, who otherwise reminded us of Auden. Juvenility by an anti-nuclear bomb scene, anti-capital punishment scene, and the absence of any satire at the expense of the Labour Party. <laughs> Bad taste by armpits and a Lady Astor speech. I've no idea what that was. Still, it's pleasant to see this type of entertainment so successful. Now, uh, an increasingly lengthy list, age and infirmity. 2005, I buy a bottle of organic wine at Fresh and Wild and looking at the label see that it says suitable for vegetarians and vagrants. <laughs> Momentarily, I think, well, that's thoughtful. Someone admitting that winos deserve consideration like everyone else before realising, of course, it says not vagrants but vegans or vegans. I don't know how you pronounce it. In, um, in 2008, I, uh, um, in 2000, in, no, in, in uh, 1997, I had cancer, and, uh, and so I have to have regular checkups, and this is to do with that. 2008, regular checkups for cancer sometimes turn up other problems. Looking for one thing, the doctors find another. Thus, in February, I was found to have a stomach aneurysm. And though it's my inclination to leave things as they are, it apparently needs to be seen to. Aneurysms these days are often quite straightforward, remedied with the fitting of a stent, sometimes in just a one-day job. Mine, though, is not straightforward at all, and we need an open operation. And the surgeons who see the scans and angiograms get very excited, as they've never seen an aneurysm in this particular spot before. The operation is scheduled at UCH, and arrangements made for other doctors to observe the procedure. The surgical equivalent, I suppose, of additional priests present at a funeral or memorial, or memorial service being described as robed and in the sanctuary. I am robed and ready myself today, and indeed halfway to the operating theatre, when we have to come back, as the operation cannot begin until a bed becomes vacant in intensive care. In the same way, I suppose, as Concord was not allowed to take off from Heathrow 
until the landing bay became vacant at JFK. The upshot is, is that the procedure is postponed until next Tuesday, and then a few days later. A pre-operation session at the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson wing of UCH, in which Chauvon, a nice, cheerful and silly nurse, takes me through the same questionnaire I answered twice last week. <laughs> she then takes me in to see the anaesthetist, and he go goes through the same questionnaire. He's Scots, so everything is a wee, a wee while, a wee op, which it plainly isn't. And I'm coming away a wee bit depressed, though <laughs> it's slightly alleviated when Chauvin says, I've just got one more question. Do you dye your hair? <laughs> and then uh, the day of the operation. Before the procedure, which ends up lasting seven hours, there's a slightly comic scene in which the nurse goes round the various wards, gathering up the patients due to be operated on this afternoon. We're told to take a pillow with us. So clad in our hospital gowns and each clutching our pillow, we walk in single file behind the nurse across the bridge above the atrium that leads to the surgical wing. We look like medieval penitents on the way, <laughs> on the way to public humiliation. The technical description of the aneurysm is a dissection of the superior mesenteric artery. Since its location is unique, before the operation, I asked the surgeon if I can give my name to this particular spot. <laughs> He's not encouraging, perhaps having thoughts of that for himself. It's a pity. Bennett's dissection sounds rather good, I think, as I drift off. It might serve as a description of some of my life's work. Then, uh, this is about deafness, 2009. Alan Titchmarsh rings to say they booked for the play, which is uh, The Habit of Art, at the National, which, since it's not due to open for another three weeks or so, makes me slightly nervous. Seeing the posters up and seeing the posters up similarly, he says they've gone to Grantham. I say I didn't know they were planning to move. They weren't. What he'd actually said was they'd got a grandson. Such mishearings are nowadays a regular occurrence. <laughs> and here's another one, 2014. Increasingly deaf, in the friendly antique shop at Southworld, a man with a camera round his neck wants to shake my hand. I ask if he's a photographer. Oh, only in an amateur way. Ramsgate, mostly. Me? Oh, I've never been to Ramsgate. Not Ramsgate, Rupert bellows from the other end of the shop. Landscape, landscape. <laughs> and I remember David Lodge's novel about his deafness, which is full of such mishearings. And it's not just mishearings. This is a misseeing. 2012. On uh, en route to Leeds, we have lunch at Betty's in Ilkley, packed with people stir-crazy after the Christmas holiday. We're sitting facing the car park and the row of shops beyond. Me, what's that shop called? Rupert, which? Me, it looks to me like hot feces. <laughs> Rupert, it's fat face. <laughs> Between a shop calling itself fat face and one called hot feces seems to me a difference of degree only with both equally mysterious. Is it a shop where one gets a fat face? 
hen sweets and confectionery or an outsize shop. Neither, apparently, just a well-known fashion outlet. Still, the name seems quite odd to me, if not nearly as unlikely as what I thought it was. <laughs> Keep up, I suppose, the message. 2007. As age weakens the bladder, I find myself having to pee more often, which, when I'm out in the country in a car, is no problem. Though, like a dog or a creature march marking its territory, I do find myself often choosing the same spot. <laughs> One regular place of worship is a lane on the outskirts of Leeds between Arthington and Harewood. It's a nice location and of some historic interest, <laughs> as in the 16th century, the land belonged to an ex-Cluniac monastery that was among the properties which included Kirkstall Abbey, granted to the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, on the death of Henry VIII. It wasn't actually included in the royal will, but was part of the general share-out that occurred then to fulfill the wishes supposedly expressed by Henry VIII on his deathbed. Not, for, not far away is Harwood House. There's a, a problem if you live in Leeds, because the village is called Harewood, and I've always called it Harewood, I think I called Harewood House Harewood House when I was little. But at some point, the family upgraded themselves, which I wouldn't have thought was really necessary, uh, and, and made Harewood into Harwood, so that you have to be careful to say Harewood or Harwood anyway. Not far away is Harwood House. It's the home of the Lassells family, an ancestor of which, John Lattles, blew the gaff on Catherine Howard, the king's fifth wife, but was later culled himself in the purge of evangelicals during that dreadful monarch's last years. I watched two of the now well-established red kites tumbling about the sky above the H Howard estate, home these days to Emmerdale, that hotbed of the lost murder and arson so typical of rural North Yorkshire. <laughs> Two thousand and ten. A routine colonoscopy, though it never is routine, with no telling what's round the next corner. <laughs> Today it's a little fairy ring of polyps, innocent enough but ruthlessly lassoed and garroted by the radiographer, lest in two or three years' time they grow up to be the nasties he's on the lookout for, but thankfully does not find. On the way down we pay a reverential visit to the site of my original operation before, as he puts it, cruising down. <laughs> Unaccountably, this takes me back to the amusement park on the front at Morecambe in the first year of the war, when Dad took my brother, who was nine, and me, six, on the Big Dipper. As Big Dippers go, it was pretty tame, though far too scary for me, who never went on it or any other again. But there was just one bit I enjoyed. When all the ups and downs were over, the train briefly coasted along a high straight stretch behind the boarding houses and with a view over the sea before it gently rattled down the long incline to the platform and the end of the ride. And that was what the last bit of the colonoscopy reminded me of <laughs> 70 years later. Politics. Um, there's actually more politics uh, in the diary than this selection might suggest, but I've largely kept clear of it on this occasion, lest it make me seem like an old git. <laughs> uh, 2014. Watch five minutes of Have I Got News For You, 
with Nigel Farage, the guest, and Ian Hislop and Paul Merton, their usual genial selves. I never quite understand why they're happy to sit on a panel with Farage, Boris Johnson, Jeremy Clarkson et al. Their reason being, I suppose, that this gives them the opportunity to have fun at the expense of Farage and co, and so they do. But the impression an audience comes away with is that actually nothing much matters, and that these seemingly jokey demagogues are human and harmless, and their opinions are not really as pernicious as their opponents pretend. And even if they are, what does it matter? As politics is just a con anyway. Whereas Johnson, the biker part, doesn't seem to me to have a moral bone in his body. And the batrachoidal Farage, likewise. So where's your sense of humor? It's only a joke. Batrachoidal means frog-like. Mm. Uh, 2015, this is uh, the day after the 2015 election. A feeling of bereavement in the streets. I shop for supper and unprompted, a grey-haired woman in the fish shop bursts out. It means I shall have a Tory government for the rest of my life. In the library they say, good morning, though we've just been trying to think what's good about it. I wanted a Labour government so that I could stop thinking about politics, knowing that the nation's affairs were in the hands of a party which, even if often foolish, was at least well-intentioned. Now we have another decade of the self-interested and the self-seeking, ready to sell off what's left of our liberal institutions and loot the rest to their own advantage. It's not a government of the nation, but a government of half the nation, a true legacy of Mrs. Thatcher. Work is the only escape which fortunately moves along a little. And then the following week, my birthday, a nice woman in a leopard skin coat who always speaks wishes me a happy birthday. I say that I wish it was. Why, what's happened? Last Thursday, the election. Oh, you don't want to worry about that. They're all the same. At which point, we're in Shepherds, the grocers. I hear myself as very rarely shouting at the top of my voice. <laughs> no, they are not all the same. They're a lot, this lot are a lot of self-seeking liars, the cabinet included and we're landed with them for another five years. She tries to calm me down, but I tell her not to bother with the other customers peeping round the shelves to see who's, see who's making all this din. She's waiting outside the shop with a cake she's bought me for my birthday, and I kind of apologize. But as I walk back home, I wonder how long it will be before this crew turn their attention to the BBC. Uh, now, this is uh, nature, just odd res uh, observations on nature. 2013. I read somewhere that the Romans used to crucify tigers to discourage others of their species from preying on humankind. On much the same principle, though less epically, gamekeepers nailed up the carcasses of crows and moles. Nobody, so far anyway, so far anyway, suggested nailing up the cold carcasses of badgers, though it might be as effective as what DEFRA is doing already. 2015. Around seven, uh, this is in Yorkshire, around seven, Rupert shouts upstairs, look out on the lawn, now. I look out of the bedroom window, and there's something on the grass, but I don't at first even recognize it as a bird. Then it becomes plain it's a hawk, 
which has brought down an unspecifiable bird which is still feebly fluttering as the hawk rips into it. What is strange is that the hawk, possibly in order to give it purchase for its pecking, is spreading its wings over its prey and as it were cloaking it from view, though never letting up from tearing strips off the now dead bird. Eventually, Rupert opens the back door and the hawk, a white flash on its breast, flies off with, Rupert thinks, a blackbird in pursuit. All that it leaves on the grass is a smear and some feathers. Everything else, beak, claws, legs, has been eaten. It's something neither of us ever seen before, leaving us untalkative and slightly shocked. Um, when, uh, when I published that in the London Review of Books, um, somebody wrote in, as they often do uh, in the letters column, um, to say that, that uh, the hawk spreading its wings over the carcass is known as mantling, which I'd, I'd never heard of. Architecture, 2007. The Royal Festival Hall, re uh, the Royal Festival Hall reopens. About a month after its unveiling in 1951, a party from my school in Leeds went down by overnight bus to the Festival of Britain, where in the morning we went to a brief concert at the Festival Hall, such events taking place regularly throughout the day, as well as at night, in order to show off both the architecture and the acoustics. I thought then, age 17, that it was the most exciting building I'd ever been in, playful, inventive, the only experience that compared with it in wonder when I went as a child of five round the grotto at Hitchin's department store to see Santa Claus. The music we heard that morning was pretty undemanding, kicking off with the overture to Susanna's Secret by Wolf Ferrari, followed by whole St. Paul's Suite. Through the concerts I regularly went to in Leeds Town Hall, I was already a fairly sophisticated music lover, and when the master in charge said that he didn't go for all this highbrow stuff, it was a small lesson that older wasn't necessarily going to mean wiser. The next time I was in the festival hall was 18 months later, when I was already in the army doing my national service. Then it was Brahms' first symphony. And one came out afterwards, not onto the enchanted esplanade and playful promenades of 1951, but to acres of mud and destruction. Churchill, in a for him rare instance of political spite, had had the whole site raised to the ground. Socialism must not be seen to be fun. 2009. A lot of fuss about the Prince of Wales, with a group of architects writing to the Guardian claiming His Royal Highness's objection to the Chelsea Barracks design is an interference in the democratic process. This is hypocritical rubbish. Architects have always had scant regard for democracy, and as often as not have the planners in their pocket. Anyone standing up to them gets my vote, including the Prince of Wales. The planning process is and always has been weighted against objectors, who, even if they succeed in postponing a development, have to muster their forces afresh when the developer and the architect come up with a slightly modified scheme, and so on and so on, until the developer wins by a process of attrition. And all the talk of His Royal Highness exceeding his constitutional rights is tripe. Um, I lived for 
I suppose, 30 years in Gloucester Crescent in Camden Town. And uh, my neighbour opposite was Jonathan Miller. Um, I'm not a, um, a, a sort of uh, Bos... I'm not a... I don't know what the word would be, a, a Boswellizer. I don't uh, normally pick up p what people say, but Jonathan came out with some good things that I... some entries are to do with him. This is 2005. Jonathan Miller is a good neighbour, if only by default. He often ranges the crescent on the lookout for someone to talk to, <laughs> thus incidentally noticing anything untoward. Today it's two men who go into my garden while their companion, a woman, waits outside the gate. They're actually having a pee, and when Jonathan remonstrates on my behalf, they turn out to be Australian. <laughs> One of them apologises, but the other is unrepentant, complaining that you, Poms, are too fixated on the penis, and what does it matter, urinating in public? As for the garden, it will act as fertiliser. Jonathan unwisely tries to put the discussion on a higher plane, <laughs> pointing out that there are issues of public decorum here, and saying that so far as his genitals are concerned, the Australian in question presumably wouldn't be happy walking down the crescent with his trousers down. Oh, yes, I would. And to prove the point, he drops his shorts to reveal a substantial dick, <laughs> which he displays to the doctor and anyone else passing. And what, persists Jonathan, would your girlfriend think? Oh, I'd be quite happy, says the girl. The dick in question, presumably the source of some happiness already. <laughs> Jonathan considers taking the argument about public decency a step further, but thinks better of it. And the Australians, who are possibly in a bad mood because, unknown to Jonathan, they've just lost the test match, go on their way. And 2006, um, Jonathan, this is about the um, Archbishop of York, who has a noticeable gap in his front teeth. Jonathan, very funny about Archbishop John St. Amu's front teeth, saying that he felt the gap was just the continuation of the central aisle. Two thousand and seven. Jehovah's Witnesses blitz the street, and when they ring the bell I lie on the floor until the coast is clear. <laughs> I imagine they're used to this sort of response, and even when someone is unwary enough to open them the door, the exchange is generally pretty curt. In one house in the street, though, they're assured of a warmer welcome, as Jonathan, Jonathan Miller is never wont to turn down the chance of a debate and lacks nothing better than a brisk canter through the arguments against the existence of God and the literal truth of the Bible. Two hapless evangelists had just had half an hour of this and were staggering down the steps licking their wounds when they spotted, parked in the street, a Ferrari. In some relief, they were admiring this superb machine, not realizing the scourge of God still had his eye upon them. And you shouldn't be looking at that, Jonathan calls from the porch. That's things of this world. You should be above that. <laughs> and this is Yorkshire, 2014. Asked by Yorkshire Tea if I would like a quick jaunt to King's Cross Station to have my face modelled in cake and put on a plinth in the forecourt. It's not a distinction that is to be conferred on me alone, though Yorkshire Tea does not specify who my fellow model en gâteau might be. 
the late Freddie Truman, I would guess, <laughs> Michael Parkinson, possibly, and Alan Titchmarsh, who's so amiable he might even do it. <laughs> a candidate for patisserie posterity would once have been that son of Yorkshire, Jimmy Savile, who seemed made for marzipan, but not now. No cake for James. This is 2005. We have mice, this is, uh, this is in Yorkshire. We have mice, the result of Rupert leaving a bag of grass seed in the cupboard under the stairs and tempting in some migrants from next door. Occasionally in winter we've had field mice and even on one occasion dormice, but have taken care to restore them to their natural habitat. But these are dark, small house mice and so fast moving they're hard to see. There's movement, but what of? So mice goes down on the settle, settle is the nearest town. So mice goes down on the settle shopping list where there are two hardware shops. Practically anything in the marketplace is just that, an Aladdin's cave of household goods, pots, pans, buckets and brushes and gadgets of every description, all very low priced, but no poison. Tom, who keeps the shop, doesn't approve, but doesn't have any humane tra traps in stock either. So that sends us to Ashfield, the more ordered and professional hardware store on the car park. While this is a shop for the dedicated carpenter or DIY enthusiast, and is also a farm shop, happily absent is that blank-faced, flat-voiced male expertise such shops often purvey, particularly in London. Indeed, when I ask for a mousetrap, the oldest assistant, now in his 80s, says, follow me to the mouse department. And we're taken to three shelves stacked with every type of rodent eliminator. We get a humane trap and some poison on the principle that if the mouse doesn't take the sensible option and allow itself, and allow itself to be caught and transported, it deserves all it gets. Does this put them to sleep, I ask? The assistant pats my hand. We like to think so. And of course, what it is, with no overtones whatsoever, is sheer camp. That's what makes it a nice shop to go into, and which oils the commercial wheels, camp. Once when I, uh, when uh, Miss Shepherd, the lady in the van, lived in my drive, um, the, there were workmen working on the house, and uh, they complained to me about the smell, so I had to complain to her about the smell. And, uh, and she, uh, she said, well, I've got mice, so that makes for a cheesy smell, possibly. <laughs> 2011, uh, again Yorkshire. Asked to provide a foreword for a book of oral history put together by the people of the next village to ours, Austwick. I'm expecting it to be a bit of a chore, but the histories turn out to be funny and interesting with the memoirs vivid and specific, particularly about the Second War, which for many of these villagers was the time of their lives. At the centre of the book is an extraordinary adventure when in the early hours of Monday the 9th of June 1941, the pilot of an RAF Whitley bomber returning from a raid over Dortmund got lost crossing the Pennines and running out of fuel had to make an emergency landing. Though it was the height of summer and should have been quite light, there was fog and cloud and the terrain is hilly and indeed mountainous, 
with the only flat land in the valley bottom crisscrossed with dry stone walls. Miraculously, there was a gap in the cloud and the pilot brought his plane down safely, coming to rest at Orkaba Farm near Austwick. Thereafter, it was like a scene from an Ealing comedy. Not knowing if the plane was British or German, one of the home guard with his rifle came running across the fields, followed by a farmer with a pitchfork, <laughs> and once the news got round, the entire village. None of the children went to school, ferrying each other on their bags to the landing place. The village policeman, failing to rise to the occasion, riding after them and shouting, Stop, stop, two on a bike, two on a bike. <laughs> Preparations went all, on all day to get the plane up again. Dry stone walls were taken down, trees felled and the gates widened, and the plane was stripped out and refueled. If it was a miracle the plane had got down, it was even more so that it got, got up again, taking off in the late afternoon and just clearing the trees at the end of the field. A, play, a plane crash might have meant a sad plaque in the village, like the several memorials to crashed aircraft that are up on the moors. Instead, it was an idyllic and extraordinary day that all Strickers remembered ever since. And today, at the annual street market, I talked to two of the boys now in their 80s, whom the policeman had chased for being two on a bike. The pilot's name was Cheshire, and he was the brother of Leonard Cheshire, uh, who was uh, in uh, the plane, I think, that uh, dropped one of the atomic bombs, I think, on Nagasaki, and, and his rest of his life, I think, was, uh, was um, atoning for that, I suppose, really, by finding the Cheshire homes. Um, I'm coming to the end now. So, uh, I spend a lot of uh, my time these days just tidying up, and today I start on my notebooks. Around 1964, I took to carrying a notebook in my pocket in which I used to jot down scraps of overheard conversation, ideas for plays or sketches, and very seldom thoughts on life. I stopped around 1990 by which time I'd accumulated 30 or so of these little hardback books with marbled covers. Today, barren of inspiration or any inclination to do anything better, I start to transcribe them. Here are some examples of the stuff I wrote. She had a face like an upturned canoe, <laughs> which was said by the actor Charles Gray at breakfast in Dundee when we were filming An Englishman Abroad. I don't know who it was he was talking about. Um, a, I've been salmon fishing. B, it's not the season. No, I thought I'd take the blightest by surprise. <laughs> uh, and a m remark of my mother's. I wouldn't want to be as bold as that. You'd never know where to stop washing your face. <laughs> they, uh, they're very nice. They have a brancusi in the bathroom. Do you mean a jacuzzi? No, they have, they have one of those as well. Um, and this is a remark by um, another neighbour opposite was Ursula Vaughan-Williams, who was the widow of uh, Vaughan-Williams, the composer. Uh, and she stopped me and said, I've, I've just been to Australia. It was all I could do to be civil. Um, it's like octopus pee. That was my mother on a poor cup of tea. <laughs> and this is a, um, a story about Anthony Blunt, who uh, 
whatever his faults, uh, was quite a witty man. Long before his disgrace, Blunt was at one of the many parties in the Courtauld Institute, of which he was the director, where at one point a colleague saw him coming on to a female companion. Later on in the proceedings, she saw him on the same sofa, but now embracing a young man. He caught her eye. Oh, Anthony, she said, you're so fickle. It's true, said Blunt, but remember, many a fickle makes a fuckle. I'm having a ju to jump a bit to come to the end. Um, when, I go, when I go upon the train to Leeds, I'll generally sit in the same seat, often in front of the same businessman, who must also be a creature of habit. We chat, though, without really knowing one another, and today, as we're getting out at Leeds, he tells me he's been staying with friends in East Anglia. He'd mentioned that he often sees me on the train, whereupon his hosts had looked rather sheepish. It turns out that at their work, office or whatever, they have a sweepstake to which they contribute every month with the participants drawing various well-known names from a hat, the winner being the one whose name notable is the first to die. <laughs> I am one of their names. <laughs> they haven't had a win for some time. <laughs> their last bonanza coming with the death of Spike Milligan who died in an otherwise fallow period, so the pot had grown quite large, <laughs> which it isn't always. If two names die within a month or two of each other, when the pot hasn't had time to accumulate, the winner will only get a paltry sum. I laugh about this when he tells me, but I find it depressing to think that even in a light-hearted way, there is at least one family in the kingdom waiting, if not longing, for my death. <laughs> I don't know what the monthly contribution amounts to, but were it substantial, I suppose a game like this might even lead to a murder, <laughs> even if it's only a murder such as occurs in midsummer. <laughs> and now the final entry, um, 30, 31st of December 2015. Wanting to wind up this year with something remind Resound, sorry, wanting to wind up this year with something resounding, I'm at a loss. It's that flat time after Christmas when nothing happens, and on this last afternoon of 2015, little occurs. I'm now 81, which though it has been a long time coming, is still a bit of a surprise. I'm comforted, as I have been in the past, by something I believe was said as he looked back on his life by the Argentinian author Borgeth. All the books I've ever written fill me only with a complex feeling of repentance. I take this to mean that he's never written the perfect book, as who has. So we keep on keeping on.